The scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, 31 through 32, and Matthew 19, 3 through 9. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her, give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, we're uh, looking at a series now on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon that Jesus gave uh, that at the beginning of his ministry. And when he did so, it was, um, it was controversial, <laughs> to say the least. You can see the passages, even last week we read and talked about adultery and lust. This week we're talking about divorce. And, and I find it important and encouraging that we look at passages that the Bible talks about. The Bible doesn't hide about what we need to be looking at, the realities of what we all are going through. Uh, we may be sitting here this morning and read a passage like that and think, well, that's the part of the sermon that maybe skips over, but I want to encourage you as we look at this that Jesus isn't necessarily giving legal advice on divorce. He's actually talking about how marriage impacts all of us. Marriage impacts every one of us. And we're going to see more of that as we unpack this. I, I read an article recently uh, on how rom-coms are dying. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this, but in, especially with the Academy Awards tonight and those kind of things, there's a lot of movies that are being uh, held up and pushed out, you know, a lot of superhero movies, a lot of action, a lot of horror, but romantic comedies are almost gone. Uh, in fact, if you watch any uh, television at all or see any commercials for uh, certain channels, they'll play old rom-coms from... Uh, 10, 20 years ago, over and over and over, because there's nothing really out right now or has been for years that is somewhat similar to You've Got Mail or uh, When Harry Met Sally or those things that serendipity, those kind of movies. Yes, I have seen those. Um, I'm okay saying that. I love them. Uh, and I do watch them over and over. Uh, but it is interesting, isn't it? And I was reading this article, there's multiple articles on this. I actually, you know, typed this in and thought, wow, is this like a one-shot deal or is this a real thing? There are multiple articles about how rom-coms are dead and how, how do they come back? And, and, you know, they give literal, like, bullet points and one of them is 
you know, one of the problems is men. Literally, it says men killed rom-coms. I'm like, thanks a lot, okay. Uh, but, I, but really, if you look at all of the things taken together, it looks like cynicism. It looks like when, it, when we approach relationships, we approach love itself, there's a real cynicism toward it. And yet, in even a Vanity Fair article, I looked at uh, 60 Minutes kind of paired up with Vanity Fair and did a did a uh, stats kind of sheet on marriage and people's approach to it. One of the number one things that people talked about is that they long for lasting faithful marriages. And yet the number one uh, opponent to that is jealousy. So there's this weird polar world we live in where our culture is, is cynical about relationships, cynical about how we really feel about the idealized and, and what we really long for, and yet we all still really long for it. We're just not kind of telling everybody that. You know, when Jesus was talking about this, and he begins many instances this way. There are six actually recorded in, the, in Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, if you're unfamiliar. And at the beginning of this book, Jesus does a Sermon on the Mount. And what he does is he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and what he means by that is you have heard it said in the law of Moses. You've heard it said long ago in the law that you hold dear this. But I say to you, and what he's setting up is that he is an authority. He's not throwing the law out. He's actually saying, how do we bring it to its fruition? Again, Jesus is not here just to give legal advice on divorce. He's actually trying to say, here is the real purpose of marriage. And here's the permission of divorce and why it was brought in. And how it affects every single one of us. All of us need to see it in that light. He addresses a group of people that were up on a hill, and he would later in, in that, ninth chap, that second portion of chapter 19 to the Pharisees who were cynical they had seen marriages end over ridiculous things. We'll look at more of that in a minute. Actually, the, the protection of marriage is why the law was put in. Because frivolous divorce was going on all about. So how are we supposed to look at this? How do you take a passage like this and unpack it? What does Jesus want us to know? First, he wants us to know that we all have hard hearts. Second thing is he wants us to see how we have faithful hearts. And then finally, we want to see the heart of God. So hard hearts, faithful hearts, heart of God. What are these hearts, right? So Jesus is often having discussions with the Pharisees. And he uses this phrase in here later on in Matthew about having a hard heart. But it's actually a very common phrase. And when he talks about it, it, it it's even brought up from the Old Testament. It's usually connected to relationships. And when he speaks to the Pharisees, they're usually arguing, right? They're arguing about the law. What is this? What is that? How do you apply this? So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, you've heard it said, everybody's perking up, especially the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap, I think, in our, in our view. Even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you may have heard the name Pharisee and thought, these are like the, the people hiding in the Bible, waiting to try and trap Jesus. They're really not doing that. They're the people who are middle of the road, trying to figure out how do you apply the law in that day? How do you apply God's word to where they lived? But what often happened is that they ended up having deeper relationships with the law rather than the Lord. 
or are those around them? So they moved in. So Jesus comes in and begins to unpack it. There were two kind of schools of thought in that day, and this is where the Pharisees were coming from. Two schools of thought about how divorce was talked about. One was the Shammai, which was taught rigorously from Deuteronomy 24. That's what kind of where this comes from in this passage. Whoever divorces his wife, let her give a certificate of divorce. That's what you've heard it said. And then the Pharisees come in and say, well, there's, what about the certificate? You can divorce for any way. Well, Jesus actually says that's not entirely true what you're quoting. The Shammai was a sole ground for divorce. It was actual adultery or occurring infidelity. This was the law. Boom. This happens, this happens. But there was another type that had come in called the Hillel. This type of law was actually open. It was a lax view of the law. It was interpreted widely. In, in, in fact, so widely that if someone burned the food of their, their spouse in that day, you could divorce them. If you didn't just simply like the way that they looked, you just divorce them. There was easy divorce all around. So the law was brought in to somewhat protect Somewhat help, fence, keep people from these frivolous divorces and actually even protect women in that day who were considered in second nature to this, second you know, tier and didn't have the rights of many men to say, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put in laws to protect you and your children in order that this frivolous divorce wouldn't cause this because adultery, the, the rights of adultery would be for stoning and a man could simply say that at any point and have his wife stoned. How would she be protected in that? So Jesus unpacks this a little bit. And it's interesting that the frivolous divorce of then is really interesting now if we look at how we have this. And I don't want to say this with any sort of triteness. I come from a family of divorce. My parents are divorced. And so as I talk about this, I realize in this room some of you come, like me, from a family of divorce. Maybe you're actually in the midst of one, and marriage to you is something that creates, creates all sorts of anger. Maybe you're here and you're just hoping that you can find a spouse. Maybe you're longing to get married, and divorce in this passage is a little bit like, that's just one thing I want to avoid. I want to encourage everyone in this room where you are. Because Jesus is not coming to tell you what you've done wrong so much in your divorce. He's coming to encourage you about marriage, about the protection of it, to both convict us and to equip us to walk into it. I remember reading, it was an interesting article to me coming from a family of divorce, an article that said uh, how I thought I could avoid divorce being a child from it. And, you know, I've talked to people before about this, and it was interesting. It was very, I resonated with it quite a bit. It was a woman who had come from, uh, it was an article she wrote about coming from a horrible divorce and saying, I will never have that. That will not be for my family. And as she moved into her marriage and having children and seeing her own self in it and her spouse and her kids that she ended up getting a divorce, and she begins to reflect on that as well. And I found that very interesting, and this is why. We all have this in us. This is what Jesus is talking about. Why did Moses then 
give a certificate of divorce, they asked Jesus, because our hearts are hard. Our hearts are hard. Jesus isn't giving a command of divorce, he's giving permission. And that's what Moses was doing. And here's the, here's the catch of it all. In seeing this passage and being somebody, all of us in this room, and this is how it impacts you, unless you actually see your heart is hard, you will not ever have a real healthy understanding of marriage. You won't. Even if you never get married, you won't. Because what is happening now in our, in our culture, we either demonize marriage or we idealize it. And we hold it in one of those two camps. And the thing that has had to, I've had to really work at seeing in my own hardness isn't so much of my hardness of heart thinking, well, you know, it's all her fault or whatever, or those kind of things. It's actually saying, I'll never get divorced. That's just as much hardness of heart. Look, I'm not in a place of getting divorced. We're not there. But until I came to see, even coming from my parents' divorce, seeing that my heart is, is inclined to do the same, I couldn't approach my marriage with a soft heart. My admittance to see a hard heart, you have to admit that you have a hard heart. You have to. Because marriage will not work. There's a great, there's a great article, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, who's a, a Duke uh, theologian and professor, he, he wrote about marriage itself. And he said, you never marry the right person. Listen to what he says. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change from marriage being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger whom you find yourself to be married. What a very stark, encouraging article on marriage. Many of you are like, uh, I just got married, that is awful. No. <laughs> Many of you are longing to have a husband or wife, you're like, mm, that's not what I think. Look, if we're looking at serendipity and you've got male to be our ideal of marriage or relationship, we're missing it. What is so beautiful about that is that there's an admittance of, if I, if I really think I know myself going into this relationship, I need to think again. If I really think I'm okay and know me, this person I'm seeking to get married to you, or this ideal person that I will one day marry is going to just love me or be loved, we have to wake up to the fact that we have hard hearts and we need to be softened. Look, marriage, not just divorce, marriage affects everybody and so does divorce. As a child from it, I see the effects of it in my, my children 
and we're not divorced, but they see it, they see how it affects. And we need to really know our hearts there. Many of you may be in, like I mentioned before, maybe in the midst of it or come out of divorce and see a passage like this that really causes you to feel a lot of shame about it. I want to encourage you, the fact that this passage is not telling you that you're a bad person. It's redirecting you to where is your heart? To ask the question. Look, that phrase, hard hearts, I want to go back to for a second, is one that's used all the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament and even further in the New. In fact, it's described not just of people who don't know God, but the disciples themselves are considered the most hard-hearted of all. And it's a phrase that talks about not knowing in a couple ways. One is the way that we are unwilling to see ourselves. Wherever you're coming from in terms of marriage or even divorce, are you willing to see yourself for who you really are? Are you willing to see that your hard-heartedness, as it's unpacked in the Bible over and over, that hard-heartedness means, I, am, I know who I am. It's that person that doesn't know who they are. It's that relationship. It's that over there that I'm not gonna be. Really? Can we be honest? Can we be honest this morning and talk about the reality of all of us are living in a fantasy of thinking that we know ourselves that well, that we're unwilling to see parts of us? This is why the Psalms, when David unpacks it, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy actually that David has written countless, King David wrote countless Psalms in the Old Testament actually unveiling himself for people to read. Shouldn't it be us that realize that it's not about everyone else's problem, that it starts here? That we are unwilling to see things in us that cause our relationships to, to, to fall apart? Look, a marriage doesn't fall apart just because of one single thing. It's over time. Cracks that happen through it, like a windshield that gets a, a, a pebble hitting the, the in, in, causes a little divot in the top of it. And then over time, if you don't fix it, you see the weather, whatever it may be, the heat, the cold, the rain, all of it, it begins slowly and it begins to cloud your vision and you can't see and you have to replace it. That is what happens. And it is devastating to us. And are we willing to see our hearts in this? Are we willing to have others come around us and do that? And the other part of that is, is where it says hard hearts is that we don't understand. This is where Jesus over and over says we don't understand. Are we willing to say that we're fools and don't get it? Are we willing to say that? Look, this is not talking about you stay married no matter what. Can I just say this to you for a second? If you're in a marriage or in a relationship that's abusive, it is not saying be unwise and stay in that relationship. You don't climb back up into, uh, 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 into a, uh, you know, let a porcupine climb back up in your lap after it's been up there once. There's wisdom involved. 
Jesus knows that. God knows that. Even when he says in Malachi that he hates divorce, he hates broken relationships. He hates abuse. He doesn't use marriage as a trap for you when you're in that, but as a place of growth to show us what does it mean to have faithful hearts, right? How do we do that? How do we have faithful hearts? Look, the Pharisees came here in this, and as they approached Jesus, and they did several times about marriage and other things, they seemed to be very faithful, but faithful more to the law than to relationships, right? If they could keep the law together, if they could keep it together, then maybe their relationships would fall in. But Jesus, like I said, isn't trying to give them legal advice. He's trying to say, here's what you don't understand about marriage. It's not about, hey, what's, what's, what's the command on divorce? He says, here's what you don't get about marriage, what it does for us, what it's meant to do. It's about from the beginning when there wasn't a law. And they're created. He goes all the way, not just to Moses, but all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and says when man and woman were created, they were meant to be together. There's no law there. A relationship. Naked and unashamed. And here's what's fascinating about the Bible, right? The Bible begins the first two chapters with a marriage that is singing. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong. The very first two chapters of the entire Bible, you know what happens? Chapter three happens, sin enters the picture, destroys the way that they see each other. There's blaming, there's selfishness, there's casting out, there's pushing away, there's, a sh- there's shame, loneliness, and you know what? The entirety of the rest of the Bible is talking about how, the, how this is broken, how marriage is broken. Shouldn't that encourage us That the Bible isn't talking about, hey, you need to get it together. It's saying, let me tell you what's happening, what's gone on in this marriage, in this relationship that you have and that you long to have. This is why. It's because riddled all through it is our longing to do this, but we use the law instead of relationship. And the Pharisees don't get that. They would rather have several laws in place and be faithful to that than to have a relationship that sings. And Jesus over and over says to them and others, says, I desire mercy more than a sacrifice. And what he means by that is he says, I would rather you be in a relationship of mercy and display the character of mercy than just simply come and put on the ridiculousness of over and over religiosity in a, in, a, in a false worship setting. I would rather your heart be faithful. What does he say to them? Your mouth speak of me, but your hearts are far from me. He is saying it's not about being faithful to the law first. And many of us may think that. Many of us may come from that background where we, we have to make it work. It has to work this way. But are we missing the fact that the law convicts us? The law condemns us. It shows us our filth. We don't want to just go back to the law to save us. The other side of that was a group called the Sadducees. They were a group who came and actually um, did quite the opposite. They didn't believe, they threw out anything but the first five books of the Old Testament. 
They didn't believe that the resurrection was important or even happened. And they decided the best way in order to make sense of relationships and marriage was to actually really adhere more to the culture, to say, to cozy up to the Romans and say, I'm going to really take this on and import it in the way that I see this. But you can see the issue with that as well. I mean, as Jesus said even himself, that the law isn't thrown out. It's to be fulfilled. It's not about us just taking, it's easy to succumb to the expectations of culture. Don't we do this with both sexuality and marriage? Do we have all these expectations of how it's supposed to be around us, in our circles, in not just movies and all those things. I think there's a part of us that gets that, but we believe that there should be some element of that. And when it doesn't happen, we go crazy. We get angry. And we want to throw it out. We can't manipulate it to our circuit. We can't try and take relationship and, and manipulate it to our cultural understanding because the culture is constantly changing on us. How do we make sense of it? How do we critique it? Jesus is both critiquing the way that we apply the law and the culture here. And he uses a phrase here that's really powerful. And he says this in verse five, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's been so much written on this phrase, one flesh. What does it mean? It means that two people, he says it twice here, one flesh, that two become one. Marriage is about faithful hearts of people, two becoming one. And in fact, Paul talks about, or another writer, about a reordering of, of marriage. What it means is that you become one physically, sexually. You could become one economically. You become one spiritually. You become one emotionally. You become one where you don't just lose yourself in becoming one, but you begin to reorder yourself according to one another. In fact, there's a military term used to talk about reordering, that you begin to make sense of everything else through that relationship. In other words, when you get married to someone, you're saying, I'm going to start making sense of my time, other people, my work, my resources, my money. All of those things, my appearances, all those things begin to have a, a shape that they go through someone else now. You begin to say, I, I have to start thinking about what this looks like in a whole new lens. I have to actually understand it. And that's what it means, two becoming one. Two have to come one. Even, here, here's the thing that, that it's talked about in the Bible, even if you don't agree or adhere to biblical Christianity, God says you're still becoming one in that relationship. That that's what marriage is from the beginning. That's why Jesus goes all the way back, long before the law of civil marriage came into to play, that marriage is that. It's two becoming one. And we have faithful hearts by understanding love with the law, love and the law. That there's love, love stays, love keeps, love knows. Do we, have we ever been in a relationship, you know, and I even mentioned this in the first of this um, sermon to talk about how Vanity Fair said that the number one issue with people in marriage is jealousy. I find that very interesting because oftentimes our hearts are saying, 
gosh, maybe that person is better for them, or maybe they love them more. What, what, you know, those kind of things, the jealousy that comes out. And I think that's really interesting in terms of love stays, knows, keeps. See, what that means is that in marriage, in that relationship, that even if you haven't been married, that Jesus is saying that there's something here about having a relationship that keeps you that holds you close. Those moments, and so many of you have told me this, that you feel alone, you've moved to a city where you find yourself, not wondering where's your group, where are your people, that longing you have is for who keeps you, who holds you, who knows you. That's a reality that we all have. Whether you're in marriage or not, that is there. And marriage is supposed to be a place where we facilitate it. We make sense of more of that, more a deep, specific way. But also, marriage is to talk about limits. It's a limit on the culture. It's a limit on how we order our time, reordering the way that we live, how we care for one another. How do we see each other? We limit, look, the the entire universe, even if you're here and you would say, I don't know if I believe this stuff or I'm a Christian, the entire universe is built on two things, love and limits. It is. There is great love, but there are great limits. We are meant to understand love. We know that. Songs are written about it. Movies are made about it. We, We live our whole lives surrounding it, whether it's in love in a million different ways. Love is that huge category, but we also know limits are a huge category. We are limited people. The gospel is saying that those things are brought out, and marriage makes the sense of those things. And here's why. Even if you're not married here, even if you're longing, even if you're coming from a divorced place, do you know that Jesus says the ultimate thing after these passages in Matthew 22? The Pharisees come at him again and go, tell us about marriage in heaven. Who's, who's going to be this, person, who, this person's husband? Who, where's the inheritance going to go? And Jesus says, do you realize there's not going to be any marriage or anyone given in marriage in heaven? See, marriage itself isn't the ultimate. It's not the greatest. It's a picture of faithfulness. It's a picture for our longings. It's what we long for in heaven. That is what we're made for. Jesus is saying, look, even if you're not married, even if you're coming from that relationship that is totally broken, and you're here, even if you're in a marriage now, and you're going, I just am barely surviving. Maybe you just got married and you're rejoicing. All marriage is, for every one of us in this room, the picture of marriage is of the faithful heart, the heart of God. It's preparing all of us for true worship because he's not, we're all in heaven. If we follow Jesus, the dominant metaphor that God uses with his people from the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament is a husband and a bride. It's the dominant relationship. And that's how he describes our relationship to him. And when we are far from him, we are in adultery and, we're, and yet he still presses forward. He comes after us. That's what the Trinity is about. The Trinity, the whole Trinity, the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is about a full 
non-separated relationship. A relationship that can't be broken. And yet, you know what's fascinating about it? Jesus puts himself in a position to be pushed out. At the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be cut off for a moment so that we might be brought back in with him. That's what this table is about. You know, this table is actually an appetizer for what's called the wedding supper. A wedding supper. A glorious supper that we will have with Jesus because he he is our husband. What makes us all faithful in marriage, whether we are married or not, or be encouraged and convicted about how we approach marriage, isn't because our hearts are so faithful that we get love limits and our longing so much. It's the fact that this grid helps us understand. Remember, there's a picture in our house of uh, Megan, my wife, and my father-in-law. And they're about to actually walk into the church. And it's almost like this aisle. At the back, there are these doors and You can see them both turning over their shoulder, looking back at the camera, right before the doors open, and there I am at the end of the aisle, crying, ugly cry, not pretty cry. And that is the picture, my friends, of where we are. We're on the cusp of those doors being flung open. What this is is an appetizer preparing us for the day when those doors open and our Savior comes to us, calls us down, And we are there, no matter how you think you look, you are his beautiful bride because he has made you that. It doesn't matter if you are angry at marriage this morning. It doesn't matter if you idealize marriage this morning. It doesn't matter if you're in a marriage, you're trying to make it, or you just got married and you're just so excited. You know what couches all of those things in the glorious picture of marriage is this, is Jesus, the husband who actually gave his body, who actually gave his blood. He didn't just give a poem to his bride saying, oh, I'm gonna love you forever. He showed it. He did it. That's how we come to this table. Praise be to God.